The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water... Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. There are moments in everyone's life that, as they look back and reflect upon them, are pivotal moments, moments in which their life really turn in a new direction. I think about, for me, September 1st, 1990 was one of those days. It was the day that I got married. And uh, the day before and the day after are vastly different. Your life turns in a new direction. November 5th, 1996 was another one of those dates. The day we had our first child. All of a sudden your life turns in a new direction. These are hinge moments. These are moments that are significant in your life that stand out, impressed upon your memory that you will never forget because something of such significance that so impacted everything afterwards uh, happened. So what are those moments in your life as you think about them? If you were describing your life to somebody, telling them your story, you would focus perhaps on this day or this day and this day, and they are the reasons I am who I am, the directions I'm going, where I'm going. You know, for those who are still in school and high school, you might think about that day that you choose your college or your career or other events that may be of such significance that you can no longer look at your life the way you once did. As we look at this passage in the Gospel of Mark, as he opens up this passage, he is describing one of those significant moments in history, a moment that forever changed history. History itself hinges upon what Peter is introducing us to, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a turning point. 
I mean, history recognizes that even in our dating system. As you think about, this is the year, what, 2023. Why do we say it's 2023? Because it's 2,023 years since Christ was born. Now, whether you say that's A.D. or you say that's C.E., it doesn't really matter because the event that occurred 2,023 years ago is still the same. It is a hinge moment in history. And Peter, as he's opening, I should say Peter, this is Mark's gospel, but he's largely writing from the, the preaching of Peter. He is explaining to us that you have come, he's telling his readers, you have come to a hinge moment in history, a day in which you are confronted with a choice that will forever change the trajectory of your life. That's what the introduction of the gospel is. And so as we look at this, if we look specifically at the Gospel of Mark and one of its unique characteristics in that it is, it is rushing us through the life and ministry of Jesus, it inter- introduces us to Jesus and talks about His life, rushing us to, the, to what He accomplished on the cross. And you think about what He's doing, and he's, he's identifying something of great significance that we need to understand who this person and work is. So who is Jesus? And how do we know who He is? And why does it matter? The opening of Mark's gospel answers those questions for us. Who is this Jesus? How do we know? And why does it matter? I want to look at those questions as we consider this passage this morning. And the first question is, well, who is Jesus? Now, if you were, to, if you were asked that question this morning, or if you were to ask that question to people that you know in your spheres of influence, who would, who would people say? I mean, we perhaps recall the familiar conversation that Jesus had with His disciples that's recorded in Matthew chapter 16 when He asked them, who do people say that I am? You know, they say, well, some say you're Elijah or one of the prophets. You know, He says to Peter, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So he gave an answer. He knew an answer. And as we think about those things, and if I asked you, who is Jesus? You might say, well, Jesus is the Christ. And you would be right. That's the very first thing that Peter, or Mark, excuse me, introduces us to, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ isn't a surname. It's not His last name. It's a title. Like we have John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, we have Jesus the Christ. But the problem with that is, in our day and age, people don't really use the word Christ. It's not a word that you would ever find in any other context, because it's it really is a foreign word. It's, a, it's from a foreign language. We would translate that today to anointed. It means Jesus the anointed. But even that's not a word that we use in everyday language. It's kind of a strange word. We might say, well, that's a, that's a religious word. So I can tell you that Jesus is the Christ or Jesus is the anointed, but I don't really know what that means. You might also say, well, Jesus is the Son of God. And you would be right because that's the very next thing that Mark says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But that too is a term like, well, what exactly does that mean? Is that me? What am I doing? Okay. Where were we? We're talking about the Son of God, yes. That's also not a term that we would use in everyday language to communicate some idea of meaning. So we could say, I can tell you who Jesus is. Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Son of God, but if you told that to your neighbor or any average person, 
They might think, oh, he's some important religious figure, but I don't really know what that means for my life. What, is, what does that mean? Now, I don't think that Mark's original readers were quite as lost in their understanding of this as we would be. To them, this was a very, a very significant thing to say. It was a very pregnant thing to say. It was, it was, so to get what they understood, let's step back a little bit in time. Let's go back, try to put ourselves in the situation that these first century readers would have been in. Now, Peter largely was, was uh, reaching out to those in Jerusalem, was reaching out to the Jewish people, whereas he was the missionary to the Jews, and we think of Paul as the missionary to the Gentiles, and if this is largely based on Peter's preaching, then we think about this as being written to the Jewish people. So, in the in the land of Israel, where Peter was doing his ministry, we, I got a little, go ahead, I got, I got a, uh, no, it's okay, I got my own soundtrack, I love it, but in that, sorry, I shouldn't have paused, but I couldn't help it, I was, don't be sorry, it's okay. So in the first century, we had the, the people that Peter was preaching to that Mark is recording for us who were very ready for something to change. They were looking for one that God had promised long ago to their forefathers who would eventually come. And the one that they were looking for was identified by these terminologies, by these, these, these titles. So they were looking for one who would be the Christ, who would be the Messiah as the Hebrew word for the Christ is. They were looking for Him to come because they wanted to see their nation, their people restore to what the glory that it once knew. And in fact, to a glory beyond what it once knew. For Israel had, had fallen out of, of what it once was. You know, it reached its high point under King David and King Solomon, but ever since then, it had kind of gone downhill. They'd had some good kings rise and some bad kings come, but overall, the trajectory of Israel wasn't in a good direction until it was so bad that finally the Lord carried them both, carried the northern and the southern kingdoms both out into exile, the first to Assyria, the northern tribes, and the southern tribes later to the Babylonians. They were in captivity for about 70 years when God sent a contingent of them back to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the temple, and it looked as though God was fulfilling some of His promises. It was moving in that direction. But while they may have risen for a time, they never really regained what they were as a nation, as different nation after different nation exchanged hands in occupying the land of Israel. And at this time, they were being occupied by the Romans. The Romans had heavily taxed them. The Romans had authorities there. They had limited what they could do. And there was a mixture of corruption among the Jewish leaders who were either seeking to be in cohorts with the Romans to, grant, to earn their favor or simply to show themselves to be somehow superior in their own measures of righteousness. So it wasn't a great place. So for, for, for the most part, the people in Israel were looking for someone to come and bring relief to the oppression that they were feeling. So they were waiting for someone that God had promised. And He had promised significant things. He had he'd given them a promise that he will, there will be an anointed one who will come. Now that promise primarily comes in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6 when we read about the promise that was given to King David. King David was told, after you will come a son who will sit on the throne forever. He will build my temple. So there is this expectation that someone will rise up, a king from David's own family, who will become uh, 
God's chosen to restore the nation of Israel. And that's what it meant, by the way, to be anointed. It meant to be anointed with oil, and that's a significant event. David himself was a king who was anointed. In, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we read about this. The story of David, Saul was king of the time. He wasn't obeying what the Lord had told him, and, and uh, God had spoken to Samuel and saying, uh, I'm going to remove Saul and place him with a man after my own heart. I want you to go to this family in Bethlehem, Jesse's family, and I want you to anoint the one I show you. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem, tells Jesse to, have a, to celebrate a big feast, to bring all of his sons there, and he does, all except for one the youngest one who's out tending the sheep. And as all of David's sons pass by, Samuel, the Lord says, this is not the one, this is not the one, this is not the one. Finally, Samuel says, do you have any more sons? He says, yes, but he's the youngest. He's out taking care of the sheep. He says, well, go get him. And so they bring David, and God says to Samuel, this is the one that I have chosen. Anoint him. And so we read in verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So that's what it means to be anointed. It means there is a prophet who anoints one with oil as a symbol or a picture of the empowerment of God pouring the Holy Spirit upon that individual in order to reign in the manner that He's chosen. And all throughout the Psalms, you read about the anointed of God. It's always referring to the, the leader and the king of Israel. So that's what the people in the first century are waiting for. So when, when Mark introduces the gospel, he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. They recognize that, oh, we've been waiting for this king to arrive. And he also says the Son of God. They think, well, what does the Son of God mean? Because again, in today's vernacular, we don't usually use that term to, rec to, to identify anything. Well, the Son of God, as you can imagine, is pointing to someone who has the, who's bearing the authority of God Himself, someone who is exercising the power of God Himself. That's the idea of being a Son of God. He has been granted authority. So, for example, when we read in Psalm 89, "'Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, "'I have granted help to one who is mighty. "'I have exalted one chosen from the people.'" I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil, I have anointed him, so that, he, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant stand firm, will stand firm for him. So this is the picture. There is a picture that, that Mark is introducing us to. This is the beginning of the gospel, the good news that the, the promised one who would be anointed to rule over king, empowered by the Holy Spirit, bearing the authority and the might of God, has come. That's what Mark is saying. 
this one that you have been longing all your life, all your parents' lives, all your grandparents' lives, has finally come. That day is here. The gospel, the good news, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, Jesus the anointed, the Son of God. So that's who He is. How do we know that's who He is? What evidence does Mark present to us that would, vali- would, would validate this claim? And he offers two key witnesses that would validate the fact that, yes, He in fact is the one who has come. And the first comes from uh, the lips of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is giving testimony to this Christ has finally come. And so, as we continue to read in Mark's gospel about, about John the Baptist, in beginning of verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So we are, here we have John the Baptist who's giving testimony to one who was coming after him that will baptize with the Holy Spirit, whose sandals he is not worthy to untie. Now, why is that a significant thing? Well, who was John the Baptist? Who was John the Baptist? To us, he seems like a little bit of an odd character. He's coming out of the wilderness. That's where he's conducting this ministry. He's preaching to the people. He's dressed in camel's hair. He's eating locusts and wild honey. I mean, if you saw someone today dressed in camel's hair, eating locusts and wild honey, preaching a message out in the wilderness, I mean, you would probably go see with because you want to see this odd sight, right? Well, John the Baptist was, was getting that lots of people to come out and see, what is this man all about? As you read, people from all Judea and Jerusalem are going out to this man to see what's going on. So he is a very popular figure in first century. He's so popular, in fact, later that we read even the king is, is upset by the message this guy is preaching. In other words, people all across the land are taking his preaching very seriously. They hold him to be a prophet, which, by the way, that's the clothing and the, and the message that John portrays. Someone dressed in the camel's hair with a, belt, with a rope belt around his waist that's, that's eating this food of the wilderness would remind them of the Old Testament prophets themselves. They were waiting for a prophet who would rise up to prepare the way for the coming of this anointed one. That's what the prophets continue to tell us. He quotes from Isaiah, but it's a quote that's mixture from several of the prophets combined here to show that this was the heavy expectation. In fact, the very final verse of the Old Testament is a prophecy from Malachi that I will send my messenger ahead who will prepare the way for you before the coming of the Lord. So when John the Baptist appeared on the scene, the people of Judea and Jerusalem recognized him as the prophet 
who would come. In fact, they asked him at one point, or are you Elijah? Now, I know that can be a little bit confusing because John the Baptist says, well, no, I'm not Elijah. But Jesus later goes on to affirm that, yes, he, he is the Elijah, if you're willing to accept it. He is the spirit and power of Elijah. So, yes, he is the figure that was coming. Jesus even testified that no one, no one on this earth is greater, no one outside of the, the New Testament is greater than John the Baptist. And even in Jesus' own time, years, you know, been at least a year or two since John the Baptist had been beheaded. I forgot where I was going with that. Um, the, the point is, John the Baptist is this figure in the first century that people would have recognized as having great authority. And he's giving the testimony in Mark's gospel to who this Jesus is. How do we know that Jesus is the Christ? Well, because John the Baptist is the one testifying about him. How did he know who the Christ would be? Well, the second part is true that we read because when, when he saw John, Jesus coming, he immediately recognizes him. God reveals him to him. And Jesus says, Jesus comes to him to be baptized. And as Jesus is baptized, we hear, we, we hear and see some very important things. One, we hear a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And there is this picture of the dove descending on him, a picture of the Holy Spirit resting upon Jesus. Now, you think about those two things in terms of who the anointed is and who, him as the son of God. You hearing the Father from heaven speak, identifying Him, this is my Son, He is the Son of God, and with the Holy Spirit coming in the form of the dove, we have a picture of the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon Him. He is the anointed one, very visibly, by the Holy Spirit, to all who are there to, to testify about it, and the voice of heaven speaks. So we have two very important witnesses that are testifying to the validity of this statement, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John the Baptist, who again in the first century people would have recognized as a person of authority, and God the Father Himself. Those are the, those are the witnesses that are brought forth by the Gospel of Mark to show us that, yes, this in fact is true. Who is Jesus? He is the Anointed One, the one you've been longing for, the one you've been hoping to come. How do we know this is true? Well, John the Baptist is giving his testimony. God the Father is speaking from heaven. Two voices that validate how do we know this is true. Well, lastly, the question that we have to ask, well, why does any of this matter? Why does any of this matter? It matters because we have come to this hinge moment in history as if we don't understand the significance as well as they understood the significance, because they got it in the first century. Us, perhaps we need a little more help, so I want to turn your attention to what Jesus Himself says in verse 15. Why does it matter? The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. There are two Greek words that are often translated to time. One of them would be the normal word we would use for time, which is chronos. So we think chronology. We think chronometer, the, a watch, a measure of time. But he doesn't use that when he uses another one called kairos. And kairos carries a little bit different meaning, a, meaning 
that we don't really have an exact translation for that word. But he's talking about an opportune time, a time that is marked out for something, a time that is ordained for something, a time is coming, a season is coming, that moment is coming. That's the kairos. That's what he means by a kairos. So you'll find this translated other places. It was the season for figs, for example. It was the season for this. It was the expected time for this. I was listening to R.C. Sproul. He talks about the difference between something that is um, historical or something that is historic. You know, some moment, every moment is historical, but only some moments we would say are historic, meaning they had great import in terms of understanding history. That's the, perhaps the closest idea we can come to what he says, the kairos, the kairos has come. The moment you've been expecting, the opportune, the opportunity has come. It's here. And it's here in fulfillment. That's another interesting word that's chosen in the Greek. And it means, it, it's an adjective describing something that is completely full, completely filled up, no room left whatsoever. He's saying that moment that you've been waiting for is completely in its fullness arrived. It is here. This is the hinge moment of all of human history. That's what he's saying. So you think, if that's the case, then what does it mean? It means you are at a point when you are faced with a choice. You have come face to face with the King whom God has promised from long ago. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? And there's really only one way to respond. He says, if you acknowledge me as your king, then repent and believe the good news, the gospel. And by the way, when we think of the gospel, if you were to define the gospel to somebody, how would you define the gospel? I know, I know we tend to think of the gospel, we tend to boil it down. The gospel means Jesus died on the cross for your sins, therefore you can be forgiven. And certainly that's part of the gospel. But you don't read anything about the cross in this announcement. The only thing you're reading about is the gospel, the good news, as that the king has come. And not just any king, the king of kings, the supreme one of kings, the one who's been anointed by God, that bears the authority of God himself, he has come. That's the good news, by the way. Because what was that king going to do? That king is going to come and set them free from their oppressors. He's going to finally bring justice. He's going to usher in a kingdom that is reigned with righteousness. You know, in the New Testament, in the later part of the New Testament, we read about the new heavens and the new earth and what that's going to be like. What is it going to be like when this kingdom finally comes in all of its glory? A place where there are no tears, no death, no pain. Where there's nothing but beauty and a developing, flourishing people dwelling in the very presence of God Himself. That's what the king is going to usher in. Now, to get there, the greatest picture we have of this is, let's go back to the time when Moses had led the people out of their slavery in Egypt, brought them to himself, and then he himself is traveling with them with the tabernacle, brings them to the, the brink of the land that he had promised to give them. And if we want to picture that new heavens and a new earth being the promised land, and Joshua now, who's been handed the reins, is to be the one to take them across the Jordan River into this land of promise. And by the way, the word Joshua, the name Joshua is the same meaning as the name Jesus. It means 
God saves. It means God saves. And as Joshua ushers in the people, what has to happen when they go into that promised land? A conquest has to take place, doesn't it? A great judgment upon the nations who lived there. So there's, you have two choices. You join with the Israelites and you worship their God, or you are taken out, as it were. In other words, you are forced to make a choice. Joshua says that to the people themselves as they're on the, on the brink of entering that land. He says, choose this day whom you will serve, whether it's the gods of the nations that are out there or it's the Yahweh, the God, who brought you out of your slavery. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what Mark is presenting in the opening of this. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel, the announcement of the good news that the anointed one who has the authority and power of God as the Son of God has now come. And in His wake, He is bringing justice and victory and conquest. So He is is essentially pushing you to the brink of saying, it's the hinge of history, it's also the hinge moment of your life. What will you choose? Who is your king? Now, the messenger was to go forth, John the Baptist, when he was sent, into, sent to go, he was to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And the way he was preparing the way was through the, a baptism of repentance, which was an interesting thing, especially in Jerusalem, as you think about, or in Judea, as, as people were, Jewish people were coming out. This was not a common practice for Jewish people to be baptized. This was normally something that a Gentile would receive if he wants to start worshiping the Lord. But the Jewish people are recognizing that they have a need to be cleansed. And if you think about the preaching of of John the Baptist, what did he preach to the people when they come out? You brood of vipers, who told you to come? You hypocrites. He's recognizing that while they see themselves as righteous in their own eyes, he says the reality is that you're not, that you need to repent. You need to turn away from the things you've been trusting in and recognize one thing, just one thing, the king is coming. And you can only have one king. You can only have one master. So the question is before you this morning, the same one, who is your king? Who is your master? John's message was bear fruit in keeping with repentance. How do you know what your master is? Well, you look at your life. You look at their, is there fruit in keeping with repentance? Is there fruit and evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in your life? Are you seeking to live the commands that Jesus Christ has called us to live. Now, no one in here is going to do that perfectly. That's not the the point. The point is, do you have evidence in your life, fruit in your life that would reflect the fact that Jesus is my King? He's the one I'm looking to for approval. He's the one I'm looking to for meaning. He's the one I'm looking to for grace. He's the one I'm looking to for life. Because the, the gods of our culture, the gods of our world, are not that. 
whether it's looking to a career to give me significance, whether it's looking to my children as my accomplishment, as the thing that gives me significance and meaning, whether it's to a social group that I want to fit in, whether it's to accolades or grades or whatever it might be, these are things that we look to to make us significant, fulfilled, happy. John the Baptist is saying to all of you, no matter what those are, he says, look, you need to repent from pursuing those gods, those kings, those masters, because the anointed one is here. So choose this day whom you will follow, because the choice you make doesn't just have consequences for this afternoon or next week, but for the rest of eternity. It is the hinge moment in your life, the day that you look to Jesus as your King. And for those of us who know we are guilty of breaking the law of God, there is an interesting text that we read about here in this passage when we read about what happened to Jesus. As soon as He was baptized, it says the Holy Spirit drove Him out into the wilderness where He was tempted by Satan. And you think, what is going on with His baptism in this whole wilderness thing? Why is that happening? I mean, in the other Gospels, when we read about Jesus coming to John, John says, me, baptize you, you should baptize me. And Jesus simply tells him, look, it is necessary that you baptize me. You may not understand why, John, right now, but it's necessary. And there's at least two important things, reasons why that's necessary. The one is it's a picture of God's anointing him as the Spirit comes upon him. But two, it's also important that he is identifying specifically with his people. Because as he goes out into the wilderness, that should remind us of another event, another event that happened way back in the Garden of Eden. another man who was a son of God named Adam in the Garden of Eden, who was also tempted by Satan. But when he was tempted and he fell to Satan's temptation, what happened to all of mankind as a result? He experienced the curse. He was driven out of God's presence. Adam's sin was passed along. The guilt and the consequences of that sin were passed along to all who would come after him. When Jesus comes and he identifies with a specific people, those who have been baptized, that is, who have been cleansed in the, in the works of their repentance, he becomes a new Adam, a second Adam, who faces the temptations just as Adam did in the garden. But unlike Adam, where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. So that as he goes throughout his ministry later to the cross, we who are his, his uh, progeny, we who are identified with him, we who are faith is in him, are tied to everything he experiences. Just like we were tied to Adam and his experiences of the curse. And when Jesus went to the cross and paid for sin, He wasn't paying for His own sin. He was paying for the sin of those who were united to Him, that He had identified with by that baptism. So that those who die in Him also are raised to new life with Him. 
so that we have gone through the Jordan Valley. We have gone through the baptism of death into the place of hope for this eternal kingdom. So the question is before you that we have a hinge moment in history and a hinge moment in your life. As the new Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve, whether it's the gods of this world, those you want to give you life and affirmation and meaning and significance and value, or Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this gospel. We are grateful for revealing to us your anointed one, whom you sent as your son with all power to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. We understand that we live in a time of opportunity, a time between when he came and brought us the gospel, the beginning of it, and the time of the end of it when he closes this period of this moment in history and closes the door to those who make their choice to follow him. We live in that moment where there is opportunity for us to choose who we might follow. Lord, I pray that you would give us faith to follow Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul goes on to explain that whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Therefore, he exhorts us to examine ourselves to ensure that we are eating and drinking in a worthy manner, which simply puts, we are recognizing Jesus as the Christ, the King, the Son of God, who has come to usher in salvation. If that is where your faith is, then you are invited to come to this table. And if that's not yet a decision or a choice that you've made, I would encourage you this morning to make that choice. And then come and take from this table. I want to invite the elders to come forward, and as I do, I'll set these elements apart to the Lord. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you invite us to this table where we get to experience communion with you. Communion that is purchased at the cost of Jesus Christ, giving himself over to death to fully satisfy the debt that we owed for our own sin so that we might come out on the other side be raised to new life, be welcome into your family, and enjoy this communion. Would you set these elements apart for this purpose? In Jesus' name, amen. I encourage you to take a moment where you're seated just to prepare yourself, and as you find yourself ready, come down a center aisle, take a piece of the bread and a cup from the tray that has both grape juice and wine on it. The grape juice is in the outer rings and the purple cups. The wine is in the clear cups and the inner rings, and after you receive your elements, if you'd make your way back to your seat using the outside aisle, hold on to the elements until we've all been served. That way we can take together. Please come as you're ready. Mary, did you know?
that your baby boy will someday walk on water. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this amazing privilege of coming to this table, which means so much in terms of demonstrating how far you would go to show your love for us. Lord, you have sent your king into the world to usher in a kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn how we can bow ourselves before him. In Jesus' name, amen.
All right. Closing hymn, we're going to sing Infant Holy, Infant Lowly, both verses. Uh, you're welcome to stand. Let's all sing together. Infant, holy, infant, lowly, for his bed a cattle stall. Oxen lowing, little knowing, Christ the babe is Lord of all. Swift and winging, angels singing, Noel's ringing, tidings bringing, Christ the babe come to the point in our service where we continue our worship through the giving of tithes and offerings. Uh, the ushers will pass the plates. You can put your offerings inside there. Also, if you filled out a visitor card or prayer request card, you can put those in the plates as well. You can also give in the box that's out in the foyer, or if you're watching online, you can give at cornerstonekady.org. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have given us. Lord, we pray that you put it on our hearts to give back. You'd use what we give to further your kingdom in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, while the ushers are passing the plates, I've got a few announcements about things coming up in the life of Cornerstone. Uh, first, our Christmas Eve candlelight service is, of course, going to be on Christmas Eve. Uh, come celebrate the birth of our Lord. Enjoy an evening of music and sharing the Christmas story from Scripture. This is going to start at 6 p.m., and child care is for infants only. Um, so, But that's all. Kids enjoy the candlelight service. It's always good. So following the service, join us for an open house out on the patio. So a lot going on Christmas Eve. Um, then there is a caroling party coming up. Miranda Fisher is organizing a caroling party uh, through Memorial Parkway neighborhood on Tuesday, December 12th at 6.30 p.m. Now, uh, if you want to come to that, you need to let Miranda know. Miranda, raise your hand. See, that, that's Miranda. So if you're planning on coming, tell her, because she's got to make plans about supplies and things like that. Uh, either tell her, text her, email her something so that she can get a good head count. Um, while you're out there, you know, make sure to have a dress in your festive Christmas attire, put on some comfy walking shoes, and help us make a joyful noise. Uh, women's Fellowship Cookie Swap. This Friday, December 8th, our ladies will gather at Evelyn Sojay's home. Evelyn, raise your hand. Evelyn! All right, and uh, for an evening of fellowship, a Christmas devotional, and of course, cookies. So that's all I've got, you guys. And receive the blessing of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you 
and give you peace. And in the words of Isaiah, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Here am I, send me.